Gosh, didn't think I would start out emotional today, but here we go. So let's, uh, let's read the scriptures together. If you will stand with me as we turn to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 17. And uh, if, Scott, if you'd be so kind to click along. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, we're going to leave it on that cliffhanger this week. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to have soft hearts, open ears, and ready hands and feet to go and do what you will have for us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. All right, we are beginning this new series on the Sermon on the Mount entitled Greater Righteousness. And as we walk through the sermon today, I hope that it becomes more clear why we're calling it this. But before we dive into the sermon, I want to talk a little bit uh, just with this idea of flourishing. Because we all long to flourish. We all long for things to be made right in the world and for us to have lives that we actually flourish in. And by flourish, I mean things going right, life being the way it ought to be. When you look around, it doesn't take uh, much of a look to realize that things are amiss and that uh, our circumstances are not what we want. We spend a lot of time and finances and emotional energy trying to make things right. We see, we're seeking that flourishing life, that good life, and we have to ask the question, where do we find that good life? Where do we find flourishing? Is it found in a life free from suffering? Is it found elsewhere? Can it even be found? Well, if we're honest with ourselves, the place we normally look for life, peace, flourishing, wholeness, those types of things, they've consistently let us down. That next paycheck never really delivers exactly what we think it'll deliver. That next relationship we have, although maybe it's satisfying in some way, it never delivers exactly what we're expecting. For you students, 
that next good grade never brings exactly what you think it'll bring because you're just reminded, oh, I have another assignment due next week. And guess what? That will never end because you'll eventually get a job and then you'll have more assignments and if you don't do them, you won't get paid. That uh, next like on Instagram doesn't bring you exactly what you think it'll bring. Maybe it brings a short smile or a brief hit of dopamine, but it doesn't solve your problems. Everything we look for for that flourishing life never ultimately delivers. So where do we find flourishing? Well, I want to propose today that ultimately we find flourishing in the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount is ultimately telling us about the whole and good life. Now, as you hear me say that, you might think, okay, that's a little weird, especially if you've read your Bible before or you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount in any way because you're like, okay, the Sermon on the Mount is full of some hard stuff. After all, doesn't it say if your hand causes you to sin to cut it off? As I look around the room, I see that most people, at least those of you I can see, still have both of your hands. So either A, you're thinking that that's not true and that's not the flourishing life to cut off your hand or you're being disobedient or something. Well, there's an A and a B in there, so you know, just, just take that. So how, how can I say that the sermon is pointing us to the flourishing, on the mount, uh, flourishing if the Sermon on the Mount is full of difficult commands to say things like, if you hate your brother, you are guilty of murder. How are we supposed to avoid that? I don't know if you're anything like me, you tend to have feelings of, of hatred and other things just kind of well up in you, and it's like, ah, I didn't mean for that to come there, and I don't want it, but it's there, and oh, I'm guilty of murder. So what do we do? What do we do with the Sermon on the Mount? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is an incredibly important part of teaching in the Christian world. If you were to take all of Christian literature over the past 2,000 years and figure out which part of Scripture is quoted the most, by far, the part that is quoted the most is the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's not close. Sermon on the Mount is quoted by far the most over the last 2,000 years. Not only that, but it stands at the very beginning of the New Testament. Matthew is at the beginning of the New Testament for a reason, and the first big block of teaching, of real teaching, where we get to understand what the kingdom of God is explicitly about, we find that in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the first part of teaching in the entire New Testament canon. So it is setting the stage for what the Christian life is like, and so it's important. It's incredibly important. But if we're honest, in our American Western evangelicalism, we tend to ignore the Sermon on the Mount. Dale is the outlier. He's the oddball who loves it. Most of us, we look at it and we're like, oh, this is kind of hard. Yeah, there's some memorable stuff in here, but it's not like I'm reading this and I'm like, yeah, I, I really want to do this on my everyday basis. I'm about cutting off my hands. You know, I don't think anybody's really saying that. Even you, Dale, I don't think you want to cut off your hands. You'd like to play the guitar. But the Sermon on the Mount is foundational to the Christian life. So I hope as we walk through this series on the Sermon on the Mount, you'll gain a new appreciation for it, but also see just how foundational it actually is in the Christian life. Because it's showing us the flourishing life, the way life ought to be, the best life. But I want to warn us that our view, our view of flourishing and of the best life is probably not what we expect or what we would initially say is the flourishing life. 
And I hope that God will challenge us and reorient us and give us a new perspective on the flourishing life. Now, today, kind of where we're going, there's going to be two main parts. I want to back up and give context of what comes right before the sermon. And that's basically what we read today. I want to walk through that. And then uh, I want to look at what we actually find in the sermon itself. So we're going to look at the structure of the sermon and just give a really brief overview of the whole thing. Now, I want to give you a warning that today is going to be more informational than normal. I don't like my sermons to be lectures and to be information dumps on you. But at the same time today, I want to build a foundation for where we're going. Or I want to give us a map for where we're going to be climbing. You know, picture the Sermon on the Mount as being a mountain. And if we're going to actually climb it, we need to know how do we get to the top. Because if we think we're climbing one type of mountain, a mountain in Appalachia, as opposed to a mountain in the Himalayas, we're going to be climbing it wrong. And we're not even going to be ready for what we find there. So that's why I'm going to take a lot of time today to do some informational type things. So forgive me if you feel like at the end of our sermon you're like, okay, I have a lot of information. I'm not sure what to do with it. That's okay. That's coming in future weeks. So today is to prepare you for where we will be going. And also, I'm going to warn you, point two and three in your little outline come at the very end. So if you're like, oh my goodness, point one is really long. It's not actually long. There's just a lot of stuff we have to go through before we can get to two and three, okay? So you can try to take notes and cram them in wherever you want or under points two and three. It doesn't really matter. Those will come at the the way, way end. So today is called The Price and the Life. We're looking at the price of following Jesus and the life of following Jesus. That's what that title is all about. But let's dive back in to the scriptures starting in Matthew chapter 4, verses 17. So Jesus is going around preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the first thing that he does in his ministry that Matthew describes for us Because we haven't gotten any descriptions of healings. We haven't gotten any indication of what his preaching actually contains other than that phrase. Before all of that, the one thing that Matthew says, you need to know this about Jesus. He goes and he gets some disciples. He says to his disciples, follow me. And I think this is actually really key, that Jesus is going out and getting disciples, having disciples follow him, instead of just attracting crowds. You know, we tend to think of Jesus as a guy who attracted crowds and he spoke to the masses and that's what was influential about him. But that's not actually true. Jesus, yes, he did speak to the crowds. Yes, he was a powerful speaker in that way. But Jesus' primary ministry was pouring his life into 12 select guys, living life alongside 12 men for several years. Because ultimately, the the crowds left Jesus. But it was his impact in those 12 men, equipping them, that after his resurrection, then leaving them with the Holy Spirit, those 12 men changed the world. And their mode of ministry was the same type of ministry that Jesus had. They poured their lives into other disciples. Jesus had a life of discipleship, not just this public front-facing ministry. His ministry was a discipleship ministry. And I think that's key for us in the church. And that being in the church isn't about showing up, being a part of a crowd, but it's a part of entering into a discipleship relationship with Jesus, where we follow him and he primarily works his discipleship of us through the discipleship of other people working in our lives. We follow other people as they follow Christ. And there's been a chain of discipleship that stretches all the way from you back to the earlier, earliest disi- uh, apostles, these disciples here. 
So the Christian life is ultimately about discipleship. Now, I want to look at this command that Jesus gives them. He doesn't say, hey, associate with me, or show up and call yourself my disciple once in a while, hear my teaching, but no. He says, follow me. It's literally get behind me. Come and be my disciple. It's the idea that you would come and live life alongside your teacher, your master, your rabbi, and become like him, and one day go and have disciples of your own. That was this process that existed within Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, at this point. You have somebody that follows you and participates in your life. And that's what Jesus calls them into. Come follow me. Don't look at me. Don't say, hey, that's nice. But follow me. And look at their response. They follow. They leave. They basically have a heart that says, your kingdom come, your will be done. They say, yes, I want to follow this Jesus. When you followed your master, it was your whole life. These guys are giving up everything to follow him. Look at what they do. First, you have this idea of time. Matthew points out that it's immediately they follow him. Mark uses the word immediately all the time. It's like his favorite word. It pops up like every sentence. It's like, okay, Mark, you know, if everything is immediate, is anything immediate? But Matthew, he uses this word sparingly. And this is one of the few places it shows up. It shows up twice. Immediately, they followed him. There's no hesitancy. They followed. So the time. Discipleship requires time. There's basically three things I want to point out that discipleship requires or a proper response in discipleship requires. The first one is time. The second one is their job. Look at what Simon Peter and Andrew do. They, immediately they left their nets and followed him. They left their nets, their way to make a living. They said, Jesus, you have control over my job, and you're calling me to come become a fisher of men. So I'm going to leave my nets behind, and I'll use whatever net you have for me to catch these men. So their job is under the control of Jesus. Their time is under the control of Jesus. And also... Their family is under the control of Jesus. When you look at James and John, their father is pointed out uh, twice. They're in verse 21, they're in the boat with Zebedee, their father. But then what do they do in verse 22? Immediately left, they left their boat and their father and followed him. They have time, job, family. The family comes under the rule and reign of Christ. It comes under God's kingdom. This would have been scandalous in their day because you were trained in a trade of your father and there was no retirement plan. You took care of your parents when they got older. And so here we have two sons leaving the family business to go and follow this wandering rabbi because he called them and told them to follow. They were trusting the Lord. Now I want to say, this doesn't mean that they disown their family, but that their family comes under the kingship of Christ. We know that Peter still is connected to his mother-in-law because his mother-in-law pops up later and Jesus heals her of a fever. So this isn't, I neglect my family and I don't have anything to do with them, but instead that my family and my family's priorities come under the priorities of the king. So our time, our job, and our family. When we are disciples of Christ, when we are Christians, little Christs, when we are his followers, we say these things come under him. 
we're opening our hands and saying, Lord, everything I have, you can take it out of my hand, should you so please. Here's the beautiful thing about having an open hand. If my hands are clutched tight, God can't put anything new into them. But when my hands are open, not only can he take out the things that need to be taken out, but he can put back in the good things that need to be there. When I say, your kingdom come, your will be done, I'm not saying, Lord, I'm going to have empty hands and, and my life's going to be terrible. It's, Lord, I trust that whatever you put in my hands is going to be good. And that if there are things in my hand that you don't want, you can have them. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So that brings us to our first point today. Following Jesus and becoming his disciple entails placing his kingdom priorities above our own. Following Jesus and becoming his disciple entails placing his kingdom priorities above our own. Our time, our job, our family. Here's a, here's a little secret. We already do this with other things in our lives. Things like our hobbies and our interests. We'll sacrifice time. We'll sacrifice money that we got from our jobs. We'll even sacrifice time with family and some aspects of our family because we want to go and do our hobbies. And now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, to have hobbies. But we're already used to putting these things sometimes under some other things. And Jesus says, will you just give it all to me? I want you to ask yourself, what's the hardest thing for you to leave behind? What's the boat or the net or the father or the time that you have trouble leaving behind? What needs to maybe come out of your hand or what do you just need to open your hand with? This leads us to the question, though. If this is what discipleship is like, or if this is the price, I should say, of discipleship, then what is the life of discipleship? What are they actually leaving, G or leaving their, their former way of life for? You know, Jesus has been saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so what is life in the kingdom actually like? And that's where we get the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount, where we get this flourishing life. So we're going to shift gears, and we're going to look at the sermon for a little bit. Um, actually, well, before that, I want to look at verses 23 uh, through uh, five, or 20, verse 25. We'll read this first verse again. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So there's three things. He's teaching, he's proclaiming, he's healing. I want you to hold that verse. Well, you can keep reading. It's going to stay up on the screen. I'm going to flip over a couple pages to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Listen to this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Sound familiar? No, I was not reading that verse again. I was reading what we find in Matthew chapter 9. So what's happening here? Well, remember... Most of the things in Scripture were written to be read aloud. So you couldn't have fancy kind of subheadings and, and you couldn't say, okay, we're in a new section now based on the type of font or a title. So what authors would do, would they would put in identical phrases to say, this marks the beginning and end of a section. And usually it's descriptive of what you would find in that section. So here we have Matthew clearly be, beginning a section in chapter 4, verse 23, and ending it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. 
what do we find in the, in, that, in the middle of those two verses? First half is the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7. Second half, chapters 8 through 9, are Jesus healing, having authority. So the Sermon on the Mount sounds a lot like teaching and proclaiming, and chapters 8 and 9 are healing. Maybe Matthew's trying to tell us something. Indeed he is. The Sermon on the Mount is exactly what Jesus is teaching and proclaiming. Now, it says here Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel means good news, and the kingdom is the rule of God, the rule and reign of God. So the good news of the rule and reign of God. And if you look in the Sermon on the Mount, and you see a bunch of ethical commands okay, where is this good news that I'm supposed to be finding? Especially if you've grown up in Protestantism, which we are proud evangelical Protestants here. Well, I don't see any penal substitutionary atonement. I don't see the four spiritual laws. I don't see Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. How is the Sermon on the Mount good news? It's a bunch of ethical instruction. This is the law. How is this good news? How is primarily ethical teaching or instruction on how to live good news for us? Because when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we tend to get discouraged. Because we're like, I can't do that. Now, before I go on, I want to issue, I don't, I don't want to say challenge, but just an encouragement or proposal. If you like the word challenge, it's a challenge to our church. And that is to read the Sermon on the Mount every week as we go through this series. It's three chapters. So not long. It'll take you maybe 10 minutes. Um, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to do any deep reflection or anything like that. Just, just read it once a week. You could read it in one sitting, or you could read it over the course of three days, one chapter each day. Doesn't matter to me. I'm just inviting you to read it. But before you read it, you need to know what it is and how this is actually good news. So that's the foundation or the roadmap that I'm about to give you. Now, I want to give you two things or two attempted maps that I think are uh, incorrect. Two attempts to explain why this is good news and things that you may have heard before or you will hear in our culture, and I'll briefly tell you why I believe those are wrong, but two attempts at a map that are not good news, but they think they are. The first question or first map, which if, when I say map, I'm basically saying the answer to the question of what is the Sermon on the Mount? Why is this good news? What is it? First one is entrance requirements to the kingdom of God. Entrance requirements. If you do what is in the Sermon on the Mount, then you will be in the kingdom. Kind of entrance requirements. It's your ticket to heaven. That doesn't sound right, does it? But there's things in the sermon that might make you think that, though, as you read it. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. It says this, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, okay, that sounds like an entrance requirement. Chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ugh. Chapter 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That sounds kind of even like a threat, but entrance requirement? These, you, you, there's, there's way more in the sermon that even sounds like this. 
we read this, and we're, kind of, we're like, okay, I hear that, but that doesn't square with my understanding of the good news of Jesus or what it means to be a Christian elsewhere in Scripture. Because Scriptures tell us we can't measure up. We can't do enough good things for us to enter into God's kingdom. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says this explicitly. For by works of the law, things that you do, no human being will be justified, that is, made right in his sight. Huh. Well, we know that the, well, the way that Paul talks about the good news of Jesus is that we are guilty because of our sin. We stand condemned before God because we've rebelled against Him. He is the King of the universe, the one who through the very power of His Word keeps everything as it is. But we've rebelled against that. We've wanted to do our own thing. That's sin. It's rejecting God. But God in His mercy says, I still love you. I created you to be with me. And so I'm going to make a way for you to be with me. And He sent Christ his only son, his beloved son, who was perfect to die on the cross for your sins. And he forgives us through his death on the cross. That covers our sin. We deserve to die, and Jesus died in our place. One of our elders mentioned today, as we were praying, that the, the snow outside, it's white, it's beautiful. And that's what Jesus does to us. Though our skins, our sins, excuse me, are like scarlet, he washes them white as snow. It's what Christ does for us. It's what he's doing on the cross. And we believe by faith that he died for us. And the scriptures tell us if we believe by faith, that is how we are made right with God. That we trust in Jesus' sacrifice. But then we encounter things like we just read in the sermon, and we're like, wait a second. It says here that I need to have this particular standard in order to get into heaven or to be a part of God's kingdom. So what is going on? So that's the first idea. Some people take the Sermon on the Mount to be entrance requirements. Generally, that'll be a very liberal strand of theology. Well, there's another strand that came out of the Reformation from Martin Luther, and I love Luther. I'm a, again, I'm a proud Protestant, but I don't think Luther was right in the way that he viewed the sermon. Luther basically said that the Sermon on the Mount is an impossible ideal. It's supposed to show us who we're supposed to be, and we can't measure up, and so we instead turn to God and like, Lord, have mercy on me. I need grace. Now, on the one hand, yes, we will never do what's in the sermon perfectly, but I don't think Luther is right because I don't think this is the way Matthew intends the sermon because this isn't how he talks about righteousness. Luther kind of takes a Paul understanding of righteousness and the way Paul talks about righteousness and puts it on top of Matthew. And that's not fair to Matthew. So let's take Matthew at his word and see how does Matthew treat the, the sermon as good news. Not only, uh, just to, in, to, to say that, in, to push against Martin Luther, none of the New Testament authors, particularly James, James is almost in a way a reflection on the Sermon on the Mount. If you take all of the book of James and you line it up with the Sermon on the Mount, you get a ton of overlap. It's almost this, as if the younger brother of Jesus just was very familiar with what Jesus taught, and it just came out in the way that he wrote. James doesn't have a problem with the Sermon on the Mount. The early church fathers didn't have a problem with the Sermon on the Mount. They don't see it as an impossible idea, ideal. When you read what they wrote and the way that they preached, they expected their congregation to do the Sermon on the Mount. 
They don't hold it up as this lofty goal that somehow we can't achieve. They didn't have a problem with it. So I don't think it's fair for us to look at it and say, well, it's just too hard. And so, Lord, thank you for your grace that makes up the difference. Now, again, we won't measure up to the Sermon on the Mount, and so we can turn to Christ and praise him for the grace for making up where we fall short. But again, I don't think that's how Matthew is intending the sermon to be used. Okay? So again, how is primarily ethical teaching, a bunch of commands and telling us how to live, how is that good news? Let's look at what the sermon has to say about itself and the structure, because I think it will shed light onto this. All right. I'm skipping a couple slides here. Let's look at the structure of the sermon. First, you have an introduction that runs from 5 to, and sorry, actually I have this wrong. It should be 16, not verse 17. Verses 5 to 5, 16. This is where you get the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those meek. Again, a little bit later on, you have you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You get those statements. That's the, that's the introduction to the sermon. And it's highly descriptive. This part of the sermon is basically saying, this is the way of the good life. It's very descriptive. That's the introduction. Then we move into the main teaching unit where you're going to get the bulk of what Jesus has to say. That bulk, found in 5.17 to 7.12, is divided into three sections. Matthew loves the number three. I mean, he's all about it. Like, it, it pops up over and over in multiples of threes. It's, it's insane. He loves the number three. So you get three big blocks that happen in the middle of the sermon, and we'll explore those over the coming weeks. And then you have a conclusion in chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. It ends with, you know, the wise man who builds his house upon the rock and the foolish man builds it on the sand. And Jesus is saying, hey, you need to listen to what the sermon has to say. What I'm saying, don't be like the, the, the foolish man. But I want to back up and look at this main teaching unit. Because in the main teaching unit, there's a little introduction. So nice of, of Matthew and Jesus to give this to us. A little introduction here. So starting in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. I'm going to read it again, or for the first time, excuse me, I haven't read it yet. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, again, hard teaching, just at surface value. There's two main things in here that are particularly hard. The first one is in, in verse 17, where he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. You know, I've come to fulfill them. What the heck does he mean by that? Well, Matthew's been using this word fulfill. We've looked at this throughout our last series. We tend to think of this fulfillment here. When Jesus fulfills the law, oh, he did it all. He did all the law on our behalf. And that's one understanding of fulfillment. But again, that's not how Matthew usually uses this word, right? Usually, he uses it to say, this thing in the past, in the Old Testament, points to Jesus. It finds its fullness in Jesus. So when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law... He's not saying, I've come to do all of it, although he does do it, and he does it perfectly on our behalf. He fulfills it in the sense that 
all of it is pointing to him. He's arrived. He says, all of that was, be- that was before, it's found in me. So that's the first hard statement. The second one is this idea that unless your righteousness, down in verse 20, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, the scribes and Pharisees had a lot of righteousness. They had their act together. You wouldn't catch them doing things they shouldn't be doing. So is he mean? You need to be more perfect than them? I think no. Ultimately, what we're going to find in the sermon that Jesus consistently says, you need to have your externals match your internals. You can't just have an external righteousness. You need to have an internal righteousness as well. You need to have a better righteousness. Not a more righteousness, a qualitatively better righteousness. Not a quantitatively better righteousness. We even see that in chapter 5, verse 48, where he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This word perfect does not, in this context, doesn't mean a morally pure. It means whole, complete. The word there is telos. This idea that there is an end, something it's pointing to. It's all together. So you need to be whole as God is. God does everything out of who he is. He's perfect. And Jesus is saying that all of that comes out of us The good things that come out of us need to come from our heart. So the sermon is harping on that fact that we need to not be hypocrites, but it needs to come from the heart. Something has to happen inside of us. Now when we think about this big teaching unit from chapter 517 all the way to 712, I said there were three, right? The first unit talks about greater righteousness, this better righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees with regards to the law. Jesus starts talking about the law, and he's like, but you need to be better than that. So a great, and we'll explain kind of what he means by that, a greater righteousness with regards to the law. That's the first section. The second section, in most of chapter 6, is a greater righteousness with regards to piety. What do I mean by piety? Just your spiritual life, the things that you do. And he lists out uh, uh, prayer, uh, giving, fasting, kind of the spiritual aspects of your life. He says you need to have a better righteousness in those areas. So the first one is law, the second one is piety, and the third section is a greater righteousness when you interact with the world. So like, are you worrying about your finances? Are you judging others? Kind of, what's going on around you, and how are you interacting with it? So that's the breakdown of the sermon. He's talking in each section about having a greater righteousness that springs from the heart in each part. So as you read, as you are reading the Sermon on the Mount, because again, hopefully all of us will read it once a week over the next few months. Just be aware. Be looking for those kind of big chunks as he walks through. Greater righteousness with regards to the law, piety, and the world. And ultimately, it comes from a posture of your kingdom come, your will be done. That's how it springs out of our heart. It's interesting that in the middle of the sermon, you find the part about a greater righteousness with regards to piety, And in the middle of that is greater righteousness with regards to prayer. And in the middle of that is the Lord's Prayer where we get this verse. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This posture drives everything in the sermon. If we want to actually have the sermon be impactful on us, we have to have hearts like this. Okay, you guys ready for what main, uh, the points two and three actually are? (laughs) You've been waiting for a while. I told you today was going to be different. But, you know, there's a lot to cover. Okay, main point two. Here we go. The Sermon on the Mount is good news because it shows us the whole person righteousness God calls us to have. 
It shows us the whole person righteousness God calls us to have. God is so kind that He is not willing to let us sit in surface-level righteousness. He says, I'm going to tell you what it's like. I'm going to show you the type of heart that you need to have because I want you to have the good life. Praise be to God that He's pushing us away from a surface level and into a deeper heart level. He says, you can't just say you love me and that you're a Christian and then live your life however you want. He says, no, I'm going to grip your heart and show you the whole person righteousness you need to have. Here's the third point. told you to be quick. The Sermon on the Mount is good news because it invites us into the flourishing life. It invites us into the flourishing life. So God isn't just showing us what the whole person righteousness is like, but He's inviting us into it. He invites us to respond to what we find. And He says, will this be your heart? Will you be this kind of person? It's an invitation. As we read the sermon, it forms virtue within us. As we read it, as Christians, it helps us to become the type of people that are described within its pages. It's beautiful that God works that way. Oh, I love it. For my Star Wars loving fans, it's basically saying, this is the way. It's a mantra that we repeat. This is the way. Maybe that should have been the banner verse for this year. (laughs) This is the way. Oh, but praise be to God that He's given us that way. Now, the only way that we can do the things in the sermon is if we have placed our faith in Christ and let Him transform our hearts. We have to be, we have to start there. The sermon is worthless to us if we don't have faith in Christ because we have to be new people. So, I've spent a lot of time today talking about these things that feel like they're hard to go together because I want us to see that the sermon is good news and for us to be open to what it says. And that's going to challenge us, but it will also help us open our hands to the price of discipleship. When I see that what's here in this sermon is actually indeed good, then it frees me to say, yes, Jesus, I follow you because that's the life that I actually do want. So as you're reading, here's just kind of, there hadn't been much application today, but here's just one application thing. I want you to ask yourself, as you're reading, what do I need to open my hand to that I find in the Sermon on the Mount that maybe is difficult for me? Something that Jesus says about a way of life that I just need to open my hand and say, Jesus, I have trouble seeing it this way. Help me to believe. I don't have a Uh, It's not up on the screen, so I I don't have that for you, but here's just a phrase for you to remember this week. Jesus, help me to follow, surrender, and listen to what you have to say. Jesus, help me to follow, surrender, and listen to what you have to say. I hope that that is our kind of heart as we are reading through the Sermon on the Mount. Let me pray. Father, we praise you that you are good and that you give us the whole life Help us to have whole person righteousness. Not a surface level righteousness, but a whole person righteousness. Because you tell us that that is the good life. That that is where we can flourish. Father, I pray that as men and women, as children, as people of God, that we would have a desire to follow you wholeheartedly. Holy Spirit, please transform us. Help us to be this kind of people. May we not be afraid of what we find in the Sermon on the Mount, but may we embrace it wholeheartedly and say, yes, indeed, this is the way because it is good, and you are our loving Father. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.